Greetings, everybody, and welcome to This is Revolution. My name is Jean Bajelon, in for Jason Miles this evening uh, for this special Wednesday night stream, which is taking place under very unfortunate circumstances. And tonight we will be discussing uh, the earthquake in Turkey, but also we'll be providing you with information about how you might be able to assist, as well as links which you can find in the description to various charities that are conducting aid work both in Turkey as well as in the affected parts of Syria uh, uh, at the moment. So, you know, this is a really tragic event that's taken place. And, you know, uh, I hope tonight we'll be able to really explain to people the immense scale of this disaster that is struck not only Turkey, but also Syria, and also a part of the world that has been racked by conflict over the last, uh, you know, few decades. And, you know, this is really coming home. Before we begin and before I bring on the panel and our guest today, I want to share with everybody, you know, uh, all of our friends uh, in Turkey and in Syria and around the Middle East who have been uh, 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 affected by this tragedy, a kind of uh, uh, a special message. Yani, ben özel bir mesajımız var. Yani Kürdistan, Türkiye ve Suriye'deki yoldaşlarımıza özel bir mesajımız var. Bu deprem büyük bir felaket. Bu zor zamanlarında en muhim şey tavundu. Acımız çok büyük. Yüreğimiz deprem bölgesinde. Ölenler ahlattan rahmet. Hayatını kaybedenlerine yakın olan yakınlara başı sağlığı. Yaralı olanlara acil şefalara dileriz. So, with that, I'd like to bring on uh, our panel. Uh, we have t with us tonight, of course, TIR regular uh, C. Derek Vaughn. Hi, Vaughn. How are you doing? Boo. Boo. We also have our representative from the deep state, Deep State Cuba. Cuba, how are you? Peace and greetings, everyone. And uh, joining us from New York, we have Professor of History, uh, Aisha Baltajoldu Brema. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight. Hello, thank you for having me. So, uh, you know, as a citizen of Turkey, you know, I want to ask you, you know, obviously you've been following this event, you know, very closely. And I'm just going to put a little picture up to see, show that people wear the where the earthquake has taken place. So as you can see, this is on the Mediterranean coast. Uh, you know, the center is in Marash, Antep, uh, Eskenderun, Malatya, Adyaman, uh, uh, you know, uh, a relatively poor and underdeveloped region of the country. And of course, you know, its effects have been felt in Syria as well, which has been, you know, devastated by war over the last uh, decade as well and is less able to cope with this tragedy. So, you know, what kind of things are you seeing, you know, what's going on? What kind of issues are people facing in, you know, in this crisis? Where to start? Um, there's a lot going on and, and it is really heartbreaking to see what has happened and what is happening in Turkey and also northern Syria. Um, the, the earthquakes, two very strong earthquakes that happened uh, by nine hour difference, really shook a big part of the southeastern and northern, southeastern Turkey and northern uh, Syria. Um, yeah. As far as I know, like a 300 mile radius. And, and as you mentioned, this is the part where um, 
the development hasn't been as good as uh, some other major cities like Istanbul, Ankara, Izmir in Turkey. And um, other thing that is that in a lot of millions of people's minds, this really was a big reminder of the the past, the, rest, the, the previous big earthquake that shook Turkey in 1999, in August 1999, that killed 17,000 people according to the official numbers, but unofficial numbers are up to 30,000 people. And that was a huge, uh, terrifying experience. And a lot of people thought that we, we were actually building better, the, the, the building codes were better, standards were better, technology was better, and nobody thought that the earthquake, a similar earthquake, would actually cause even more death than what it did in 1999. And here we are. The official number as of now is around 13,000 death, and, and uh, that is only going to increase. And the estimates are between 50,000 to 100,000 in terms of what people are expecting to see at the end of the uh, uh, at the end of the week, um, because there are still thousands of people under the rubbles. They are um, day by day dying, if nothing else, by frigid weather, because it has been also extremely cold in this part of the country, unseasonably cold, and that is not helping as well. Um, everybody is devastated, but um, soon after the earthquake, the, the sadness, um, was accompanied by anger, a big, big, big anger, because people realized that a big chunk of this devastation was uh, unavoidable, uh, avoidable, and and seeing that and realizing that really made people angry um, in so many levels, and the lack of trust, I will say, to the government and government-related agencies. People really didn't know what to do, where to go, how to reach out to the people to help them. And just to give you an idea, right now, both within Turkey and beyond Turkey, the most trusted um, uh, a, uh, the organization uh, is something called Ahbab. And I think it is also listed uh, under the in the description here. And it is led by a singer. A singer turned to an activist in Turkey, Haluk Levent, and and he has been really a big help to individual people in small communities who were struggling with certain uh, economic issues. But um, this is this is really too big to be handled by a, a, a just one guy, and whatever infrastructure he was able to build in the last couple of years. This is something that you will really need a strong state with its organizations and, and institutions. And that is not there. And today, actually, there was a tweet that the head of this Ahbab, Haluk Levent, uh, shared a video where two ministers, uh, secretary of, uh, um, two secretaries of, I don't remember what, but they actually were getting briefings from Haluk Levent in terms of how things are on the ground and what type of efforts are needed. And it is supposed to be the other way around. A guy, an activist, a, a charity organization will go to the state and ask what is there to be done? Tell us what to do. But the situation right now on the ground is really, really bad that the state is going and, and getting briefings from an, 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 art, an artist turned to activi activist and a charity person to, to get information in terms of what needs to be done. 
and thousands of people are still waiting for help. And uh, you mentioned, so, you know, we're talk- we've talked, you mentioned the numbers of people who are uh, who have already been recorded as dying in this tra- tragedy and also the large number of people who are still missing underneath the rubble in uh, you know in these cities and i just want to let people know I, I was considering you know showing some people pic- showing pictures of this but i kind of don't think that's particularly uh, uh, useful at this moment. People can go and look and s- look at the level of devastation that's taking place. Uh, you know, you've seen these large apartment blocks have fallen down. People have been uh, buried underneath uh, this. But it's not only the uh, uh, it's not only the people who have died, but also the survivors are in a you know deep crisis as well because you know utilities are non-functioning. The state is, uh, you know, uh, inc- apparently uh, inconsistent in terms of how it's responding in different parts of, uh, of, the, re- of the region. You know, this crisis has affected places as far away as Eskenderun, which is on the Mediterranean coast, and Diyarbakir, which is in the heart of Turkey's Kurdish region as well, where you've had, like, you know, major disasters and the, the state capacity to deal with any of this. For the survivors who don't have shelter, who are suffering from this unseasonal cold. You know, many people have fled from the cities to the villages and the villages are, you know, unable to cope. They don't have the resources to feed and clothe people. And, you know, if things don't change relatively soon, people will start dying. There's risks of uh, disease spreading, uh, uh, issues with food and medicine. And let's not forget as well, this particular region that has been affected was also home to a large number of extremely impoverished uh, Syrian refugees who are, you know, who, who were living in this region. So the, you know, m- many of the dead may not even be counted because they aren't registered Turkish uh, citizens uh, as well. So we have this com- a humanitarian, uh, humanitarian disaster, not just from uh, the earthquake, but uh, also from the fallout for the earthquake and the apparent slow response, as you mentioned, it's civil society organizations that have been responding but they simply don't have the capacity that the state that uh, that the state has um, exactly from exactly. what i've read the turkish military has not yes. been mobilized adequately now yes yes the the the, 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 the government really took its time and it, the, i think in a in a disaster like that the first 24 hours is really critical because it has the time that you can reach out to as many people alive as possible under the rubbles. And, and the country went through this several times. So this is not like the earthquake is happening for the first time and the government doesn't know what to do with it or about it. But the first, the first 24 hours, they really downplayed it. They, they really didn't even release accurate information in terms of the, the size of the damage and how many people were affected by that and, and how many buildings were, were collapsed. And, and, the army was not uh, put into a mission to reach out to people and the collapsed buildings. And when people, civil society and, and even like individuals like you and me, when they wanted to go and help, they were not able to do that because most of the roads were damaged and the, the airport in Antakya, uh, which is one of the most recent airports that was built in the country, damaged in a way that it is not possible to use anytime soon the bridges and the and in in many other infrastructural uh, uh, infrastructural buildings 
uh, damage. So now the increasingly the army is on the on the um, field. The soldiers are helping, uh, but the first 24 hours there were only a little around uh, 3,000, 3,500 soldiers who were tasked to go and help, which is a ridiculously small number. Turkey has, they have been bragging about being the second largest army in NATO, uh, having around a million people in the in the army. And when you brag about, oh, we, we sent 3,500 soldiers to help, it is really a slap on the on the rest that this is not, you are not taking this seriously. And that really hurts that a lot of people who could have been actually saved if enough resources were dispatched right away, right after, um, I think a lot of tragedies would have been avoided, but this wasn't the case. And refugees is an ex- it's an extremely important point. There is over 4 million refugees in Turkey, and the estimates uh, is that uh, around 1 million of that 4 million is in the region that is hit by the earthquake. And, and who knows how many of them, and the statistics tell us that they are poorer, they live in more impoverished parts of the towns and the cities, they are going to live in more crowded places, and 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 who knows, actually, we are even get an accurate number in terms of how many refugees uh, uh, died and, and got injured. Van Kuba, questions and thoughts? Um. One other characteristic, one other part of the story of the area that's been hit by this earthquake is that also it went through the most um, severe experience during the ISIS, um, anti-ISIS campaign on the Syrian side um, with the YPG, uh, YPG forces and um on the Turkish side, the militarization of the border, the um, smuggling networks um, in order to move materiel for um, ISIS. is Do you think that that's a factor? On the Syrian side of the border and places like Aleppo that were nearly leveled during the war, of course, that adds to the devastation and reduces the ability of um, local groups to organize. But on the Turkish side, do you think there is something left behind from the war with ISIS, uh, either um, in the st- local structures or um, social groups, uh, or is it just another part of Turkey except a little bit poorer? Um, I don't know the. I don't know how the the fight against ISIS or the operations that were conducted beyond the border would would affect the situation right after the earthquake. When you look at the center of the earthquake, the cities of Kahramanmaraş, Gaziantep, and Malatya, these are the cities that the AKP government is the strongest. So there's really not a situation where you would say that, well, the government is punishing these places because they are not getting enough votes. This is where the government is the strongest. Uh, so I think they really thought that this that they could. In there are multiple scenarios, and and one that they really, they are so living in their own bubble that they had no idea, and they also got caught very badly. And the other scenario is that they knew how bad it was from the beginning, but they thought they can manage it in a way that 
uh, not many people will hear or not as many people as now would hear about that. Just to give you an idea, today for 10 hours, Twitter and Facebook were, were shut down in Turkey by the government. The access to Twitter and Facebook were, were shut down. And the reason for that was misinformation, dissemination of misinformation about the earthquake. But what actually was happening that the government was trying to punish or trying to shut people's mouths who have been complaining about the inadequacies of the of the government or the inefficiencies of the government, the level of corruption and how this was avoidable and it, it, it happened. And, and they did not like that. And rather than trying to channel all their resources and efforts to send as many people as possible, as many teams as possible to the places where the earthquake hit, they had the time to think about this and come up with a strategy, shut internet down, shut Twitter and, and Facebook down for people who have been also using it to basically locate themselves sending signals and tweets saying that I am under the rubble. I am here. I am in this building. I am in the street. I am still alive. And thousands and thousands of people used social media for this purpose, basically this purpose, or to, to ask people help that I have my mom and dad in this town. I cannot go because the roads are blocked. Can you go and check on them? This was the only way for a lot of people when the phone lines were not working, when electricity was gone. And they had the time and effort. This is the this is the part that I cannot grasp. I cannot put my head around that. In a situation like that, when we are talking about thousands of people's lives are lost, and they have time to think about a strategy like that. To me, it shows that they really are afraid. They really know that this is the last nail on the coffin. I think that's, there's a saying like that in English. And now they they they, they just are terrified. And I was saying that to Jane, they are terrified, but it also means that they are going to be terrifying. Because when you have a lot to lose, when you are in power for over 20 years, when you are controlling every single source and, and revenue for 20 years, giving up, just I don't think they can handle that. And and I think this was just a sign of that, that um, they thought they could just slow down and shut down Internet. And, and shut up people's mouths so they wouldn't complain about what's happening and what they are seeing on the ground. You mentioned um, the previous earthquake in 1999 and how um, the AKP hasn't learned anything from it. There was um, standards didn't improve. There was no enforcement of building codes and no response, no adequate response. Um, civil society groups about to step up. Uh, I think that when it comes to shutting down the internet, that's a lesson they learned from the attempted coup um, a few years ago, 2015? Um, 16. 16. 16. And um, the preoccupation um, with maintaining power is clearly uh, a stronger force in the AKP leadership than um, disaster preparedness or, or saving lives. Yeah. Yeah, they repeatedly cut the budget for the disaster relief funds, as if we are prone to the countries prone to these the, these disasters. Instead of increasing their budgets, increase, increase, instead of actually making them more uh, complex and sophisticated with their technologies and human sources and 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 uh, whatever is needed 
uh, but they actually cut the budget. Is there an association between Syrian refugees and disaster relief, a kind of narrative that this isn't going to help Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I will say the vast, vast majority, what I'm able to see on Twitter, the vast majority of people are really doing their best, whatever they can, to reach out to people, regardless of their religion, regardless of their ethnicity and language, etc. But there there also have been some some people who have been showing their ugly sides, And, of course, the first name that comes to mind is the head of this uh, party, political party in Turkey, uh, called uh, Zafer Partisi, which is Victory Party, or however you want to translate it. Maybe, Jenny, you have a better translation. Mm -hmm. And he is the the anti-immigration, anti-immigrant voice in Turkey right now. And he is the one who is still talking about how Syrians, how refugees are uh, plundering the, the stores in Antakya, how uh, the refugees and, and immigrants, illegal immigrants are coming and, and taking what is not theirs. Luckily, not enough people, <laughs> not a lot of people are listening to this monstrosity, but they exist. Unfortunately, they exist, but they, they are, they are the, the minority. Luckily, they are the minority. I mean, yeah, this is... Uh... Umit Ozdag, yes. who's uh, who, who, although his party is very small, it has a disproportionate um, influence on the political discourse in Turkey. But I think one thing that is uh, actually important to understand, although Syria was not at the epicenter of this um, earthquake, the war combined with the sanctions, uh, uh, you know, have magnified how that disaster has affected places like Idlib, places like Afrin, which are under Turkish administration. Um, the, the YPG-controlled regions were relatively lightly hit. They don't have too many high-rise buildings, etc. But, you know, in Idlib and Afrin, which are uh, under Turkish administration, um, the crisis is magnified by the fact that as far as I can tell, and perhaps this is incorrect at this present time, you know, in face of the disaster in Turkey, the resources that the Turkish state was spending in these regions uh, was withdrawn to the Turkish side of the border as well. So you have these regions which have been effectively de facto integrated into Turkey uh, over the last couple of years are now abandoned uh, to uh, you know, to fend for themselves as uh, the Turkish state redeploys its resources to deal with the crisis taking place inside the borders of Tur- uh, of Turkey. As soon as the crisis has hit, you know, this kind of gradual expansion of uh, Turkey has reversed in a, uh, a bizarre way as they've had to, you know, as the, you know, as, as Mao says, the paper tiger has been explode, uh, exposed. Van, do you have any thoughts? Ron, can you hear me? You've gone silent. Um, as paper tigers go, it it seems like it's taken a while to explode. But national, uh, national, uh, natural, and national disasters tend to do that, right? I mean, for narcissistic Americans, they can think of the Katrina moment. Um, the question though becomes like. 
how long can they possibly sustain this narrative and not deal with the actual damage of the earthquake? And I don't have any idea. Um, I was last time I was in Turkey was right before the coup, um, the attempted coup, um, which ended up kind of in a counter coup, finally getting all the Kamalist out of the government. But um, it seems to me like uh, the uh, Justice and Development Party, the AKP, has weathered almost as catastrophic stuff before and come out on top. This seems a little different, and I'm not quite sure why it seems different. Yes, you're absolutely right that um, this is not the first moment of crisis in Turkey. And each time people, particularly the critics of AKP, thought that, oh, this must be the end of them. Because look, how are they going to survive that? And they did. Uh, and, and, and to me, uh, each time they survived, they, they became stronger. And they really institutionalized the way with which they, they survived these crisis and the, the the change in the system, getting rid of the whole position of prime minister in Turkey, consolidating every single power under the name of president, getting rid of certain parts of the constitution. This really created a system where you really cannot do much. And one of the major moments of victory for the critics of the government was the, the local elections where uh, the, the, the municipality in Istanbul and Ankara, they lost and the main opposition parties uh, candidates won. And, and, and that was, the, that was the, the moment where people thought, okay, maybe some things can change. And of course, this is another one of those moments and, and because people are also comparing it with the 1999 earthquake that really created a huge wave of criticism towards the government. And, and in 1990s, the Turkish politics was a mess. The whole 1990s, it was a, a series of coalition governments, one after another, one after another, and inflation skyrocketed in a comparable way to now. Uh, and and the, basically, how actually Erdogan came to power in early 2000s is directly related to what happened in the 1999 earthquake and aftermath. And they are aware of that. They are aware of the power of a disaster like this. And it is not surprising that now the major mouths of AKP supporters started to talk about, oh, maybe this is not the right time to do the elections because the elections are scheduled to happen in May. And, and um, if it happens in May, the, this earthquake and the aftermath is still going to be fresh in people's minds. And now you see that they are starting to talk about bring this up with op-eds or major supporters of the government writing in media uh, outlets that are bought or supported or, or patronized by the government saying that, well, this is not the right time to do elections. Maybe we should postpone it to uh, March 2024 where, when there will be an election, local election anyways. So this is, this is to me, an attempt to, to try to push the election as far as possible to make sure they are not suffering from the outcome of the earthquake. Uh, and, and they are going to try that. And to be honest, if they want to, there's really not much to stop them. Now there is martial law uh, in, in these cities. And for three months, you can, Erdogan, if he wants to, 
single-handedly can extend it for another three months. He can make it a nationwide martial law. And once you do that, the elections are gone. So, and there's nothing to support him. There's nothing to hold him accountable to a, to a move like that. And a lot of people are now afraid that this is where it is going. Although a state of emergency didn't stop them holding a referendum, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> when it was convenient to them uh, to hold, uh, hold, the, hold the referendum. But I think that's a really important point. You know, the, the 90s was a period of crisis in, in Turkey. You know, you'd had a relative stability under Turgut Özel in the 80s. Some, some benefits for certain elements of Turkish society with neoliberalization, you know. Uh, and then in the 90s, there was this kind of faltering, this economic crisis, coalition governments. Uh, the war with the PKK really heated up during this period. And people got sick of it, right? And the nail in the coffin was this earthquake. And people elected the AKP as a kind of clean hands administration. Now, whether they always had this plan or they came to this plan in power is, you know, people debate that, but I kind of think it's, even if they did come with the best of intention, power corrupts, you know, and uh, they've been in power for a long time. And I think, you know, the meta picture that we're seeing is that in this last 20 years, there has been a facade of development. There has been, and there has been real development. Like for the first 10 years, you know, the IKP winning elections not really by playing on culture wars, but by saying, we built this hospital, we did this. Do you want to go back to the 90s? They, they did provide concrete material gains for their supporters. Turkish development has historically favored uh, people in Western Anatolia, in, the, in Ankara, in Istanbul. There has been, you know, people often talked about the, the uh, headscarf issue as being a you know, a, a religious issue, which it is to a certain extent, but it was a class issue. People don't like people from Tashra coming into their spaces, the people from the countryside coming into spaces and making it look, you know, making you eat lahmacun and, you know, look like a peasant from Anatolia. There was a very strong class dynamic to that. These people did provide that level of development and really for the first time in Turkish history created a national political party that could win votes from Hakkari all the way to uh, Tekiada, right? But, you know, the flip side of this is there has been, especially in the last 10 years, an utter degeneration of the institutions of the Turkish state, which, you know, however, however authoritarian and top-down those institutions were, there was a kind of institutional memory going back to the reforms of the Tanzimite, you know, like these weren't institutions created, you know, 10 years ago, you know, all these bureaucratic institutions predated the foundation of the Republic and that that balance of power, there was a oligarchy, you know, and a, and an institutional conflict There was, you know, the, the, uh, but, you know, in the last 20 years, the, the paradigm has shifted and, you know, the coup was really, you know, the last bastion of independence, as it were, from the AKP was finally taken over. Yeah, uh, so, uh, and, and what comes with that is the cronyism, the corruption, and the hollowing out. And we talk about this a lot on This Is Revolution, happening in the West as well. The hollowing out of institutions and a kind of, we have a saying in, in, in England, 
all fur coat and no knickers, you know? So like, you know, it's all show, but there's nothing, there's nothing underneath it. And all this development that we've seen, which was impressive on the face of it, so much of it has just literally fallen down in 10 seconds, right? All these high-rise apartments, you know, because it looked, I think, to many people, the AKP was solving the Gejekondu issue, the, the favelas that were existing on the edge of the city. The, you know, when I lived in Turkey, you know, I, you could see the physical changes taking place in the country, right? Um, but, you know, it's kind of run out of steam and everything seems to be increasingly cheap and rushed. And, and behind that whole thing is that these institutions that sustained the Turkish state, that made it a relatively strong state in a region where you had relatively weak states, those institutions have now been uh, 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 hollowed out and, you know, the parliament is now basically just, a, you know, a, a function of the AKP. The, you know, whenever the opposition gains ground in the uh, local elections, powers are taken away from them, or if they're Kurdish, they get, you know, replaced by, they get replaced by um, uh, trustees, by a centrally uh, appointed officials. So everything has, is, there's a complete hollowing out of the state. And you can kind of hide that for a while. But it really comes to a head when you face this kind of uh, crisis. And as you pointed out, one of the big sources of anger against the coalition government that took power, I think, in 1999 on the edge of it was the failure to mobilize the army, the inadequate response. Now, that government didn't have the capacity to stay in office. It was a coalition government, right? This government now is a officially a coalition government, but is it really a coalition government? You know, even the MHP, which is the um, far right party in Turkey, is now hollowed out, right? It's now just being an appendage of the uh, of the presidential system, which has been uh, established. The AKP, which was had liberal factions, it had many different leaders in the first decades. It's now that what they had a three term limit on the MPs. Once all the old guard of MPs left, they brought in all their new guard of MPs who were loyal to the leader. So the political institutions have been mobilized. And, you know, the AKP has been successful with this facade, but also by playing off the opposition against one another, which the opposition has proved itself, at least until this moment, incapable of uh, in, incapable of, uh, you know, mounting any meaningful resistance to 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 the government, and but now this seems to be like this could be a real game changer because this is a, like a bomb dropped in the center of the heartland of AKP support. I guess I have a couple of questions and uh, some parallels to kind of draw out for for people who don't know the regional history as well. Um, one thing that the AKP has associated with it that most kind of semi-insurgent outsider groups that take over a government don't is the ability to utilize the full state apparatus uh, to s- suspend elections, etc. You normally associate this with like Nasserist in the Egyptian military who were able to do this and, you know, the, their 90-day rules of emergency that last, I don't know, 
Uh, the first one lasted 30 years, and the current one has lasted since 2006, 17, until <laughs> probably the death of LCC. But um, you, the, the, the AKP is different from a lot of soft Islamist groups, and that's how it's often portrayed in America as a soft Islamism, um, which I think is somewhat misleading, but that's my personal opinion. Um, and that it seems to be able to wield... Uh, the apparatus of the state in ways that other groups that have been in similar positions in the, the region have not been able to do. Um, and yet it also seems to have hollowed out its state apparatus largely for ideological apparatchiks, which is um, usually a bad sign <laughs> um, for a party's ability to hold on to power. So that, that is very different than the other states in the region of the Middle East. Also doesn't really resemble Europe in any way, in any meaningful sense. Um, uh, how does the AKP hold on to that much institutional power while also not seemingly having any, you know, longstanding deep apparatus underneath it to maintain its own administrative base? This, this is a very good question, and, and there are different layers to answer that. But I think one of the first things co that comes to mind is that there's still this veneer of democracy, that it is not like there was a coup and Erdogan came to power, and he was the military head of a military, and he staged a coup, and then now he's the president. He was elected and elected again, and elected again. And even though you can talk about certain mishaps in the elections, and in particular local elections are, I think, are more prone to corruption in uh, rigging in that sense. Like we all know what happened in Ankara in the, in the not this last election, but the one before. Uh, but when you look at the general elections, you really cannot talk about like big rigging. And you cannot talk about, oh, like they didn't have the vote and they are still ruling. So they are lacking the legitimacy. So in, in, if you look at that, people are, have been voting for this party and in significant numbers. And the, the, the very first time after 2003, the very first time people actually thought that there was now a legitimate alternative was 2015, where the vote of uh, uh, AKP for the first time was below 40%. And what happened? The country found itself in a war in a couple months with, with PKK. And at the end of that, the elections were, were renewed. And that 39% got to 51% very quickly. So because, and the, the, the Erdogan is a shrewd politician. He's not dumb. He's actually very smart. And and his shrewdness and, and his intelligence and, he, and him knowing when to act and how to act is one of the, one of the major reasons for him to be able to come here to this moment and, and actually stay there and, and become as popular as he is. One of the major problems that we are seeing in this earthquake that is now displayed very openly in front of our eyes is that Erdogan has or had ambitions beyond Turkey. And of course, we all know that with this uh, military uh, uh, activities in northern Syria, and he has so much uh, ambition in going all the way to Aleppo. But his ambitions in the international scene is, is much larger than what he wants to do in Syria. 
what he has been doing in Africa, what he has been doing in places like Pakistan and Bangladesh in Central Asia with what we call now is Turkish soft power through construction companies, through Turkish TV shows, through aids, through schools, has really created a, a, an image for him in the international level as well, where he is revered. He's respected actually much more internationally than he is within the country. I live in New York and I use Uber and Lyft uh, all the time. And whenever I have uh, I have an ability or an, an opportunity to talk to the guy driving the car, it's like, where are you from? And they are from Bangladesh and Pakistan and Senegal and Mali and Burkina Faso. And they all love Erdogan. They all love him. They think he is the godsend person. And the other, the last one that I actually met, a guy from Western Africa, was showing me his jacket, saying that up until Turkish stuff arrived, we were using made in China, and it was rubbish. And now, look, everything is so much higher quality, and and we love Erdogan. We love Erdogan. He is the leader. I wish our leader was like him. But what happened was that at the end, resources are limited. You cannot be what you want to be internationally, but also within the country. And he was chipping away from resources within the country to invest in, in Western Africa, in Pakistan and in Bangladesh. And he never thought that something like that, a big earthquake, would reveal what was happening behind the scenes. And this is what happened to him. And hopefully it is going to be enough to reveal his, 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 the level of corruption in the country. Um, but I am not as optimistic as I want to be. Um, I would be curious if the countries that had been receiving Turkish aid, especially for construction projects, don't revisit the, um, and reinspect the sites that have been handed over. Because this is also going to be a tremendous blow for Turkish soft power. If, um, this kind of response follows a major disaster in country, then it fundamentally shifts the, the view of Turkish competence and capability. Exactly. And Turkish construction has been huge. Uh, construct, Turkish construction companies have been leading the, the, any major construction uh, project where you have in Africa, you have in Arabian Peninsula, in the Middle East, in Central Asia, in South Asia. And if I were them, I would now check my sources again to see did they really deliver what they were supposed to do. And I mean, this is this is what's been happening. I mean, the Turkish co construction sector is, you know, notorious for its cor corner cutting. Now, after the Duzja earthquake in uh 1999, there was a whole, you know, rigmarole about improving building safety, having more uh, uh, earthquake preparedness. But if, with the building safety, well, we've seen, you know, these, uh, you have these big construction moguls, these big construction companies that have been getting government tenders. There have been these huge infrastructure projects, which have been the basis of IKP support. They provide employment for uh, uh, millions of peoples. You've had these uh, vanity uh, big projects that have been cheapened by the use of extensive Syrian labor uh, to build the mega projects as well. But it's all very impressive. Mosque, you know, I, I used to joke that, uh, you know, Justice and Development Party's uh, metric of development was uh, 
mosques and shopping centers, right? Like how many mosques and how many shopping centers, how many snitserais are there around the, uh, the, 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 the place, you know, does it look nice? Uh, and they benefited because uh, Turkey has been able to export its brands, its businesses to markets that Western companies are too afraid to go to. You know, one of Turkey's biggest trading partners is Iraqi Kurdistan, right? You go to Iraqi Kurdistan today, everything is, it might as well just be Turkey. You know, there's Zirat Bankasa, there's everything, you know, uh, every brand company that you can find from, from Turkey is in Erbil, is in Suleymaniye. You can go to, you know, like all these chain restaurants that have become popular. Uh, it's, you know, Turkish capitalist civilization has spread across, uh, across the, uh, the region. But, you know, the price of that cheap construction, it seems to have been that these big companies have been cutting corners. And, you know, what's fallen down? We've seen the Belediye uh, buildings uh, falling down. We've been seeing uh, the, um, we've been seeing the uh, hospitals, hospitals yeah. falling down. Airports. Uh, airports falling down. These are government construction projects that have been tendered out to people who have close relationship with the, uh, uh, you know, construct, you know, a close relationship with the um, uh, uh, government, you know, and we've come to this kind of end point, you know, Erdogan, as you noted earlier, he is a master politician, you know, he, he was able to pose as a liberal for a per certain period of his rule. And, you know, I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of us uh, were, I think, well, I think especially a lot of people who had suffered under the Kemalist uh, system, they saw it as an, that perhaps, you know, this is the real bourgeois revolution. We're going to have parliament democracy because now the state, which has been the oppressive organ on Turkey, has been like uh, subjugated to the democratically elected politicians. But that period of liberalism in Turkey in retrospect, I kind of see as that was because there was a big fight taking place over control of all the uh, elements of government. And when that fight was concluded, uh, there was a crisis, 2015, IKP lost support. And what they did, what Erdogan did was completely reorientate his social base. He's always had this heterogeneous social base you know, early AKP was, you know, poor people from Anatolia, uh, pissed off liberals, liberal Muslims, uh, all in, uh, and Kurds, all in one part. And then when that became no longer the convenient political vehicle, he moved on to in an, uh, you know, far right Turkish nationalism, you know, miligurush um, kind of politics uh, as well. He's been able to play this and he's been able to use foreign policy, such as the wars in Syria, to keep the opposition divided because, you know, without a coalition of JHP, uh, E-Partisa, and uh, HDP, there is not really an opposition, right? There's, they don't have the, either one of the, I mean, there are these other political forces which are just kind of, you know, just for show. But those are the three main political forces and they just cannot coalesce together. And Erdogan is continuously playing on things that divides them. Right. So the war, the heating up of the war with the PKK was very convenient. Right. Because it broke off one branch and made opposition more difficult. Now, 
what will we see? You know, like what kind of opposition we'll see? And I think, but what you mentioned earlier as well is important. Turkey, uh, with the presidential system, with the complete subjugation of all the uh, judiciary, the parliament, the military, how, how and why would these guys leave power, right? Exactly. I mean, there have been two major instances where people thought that now there is a legitimate call, there is a legitimate opposition figure uh, because Erdogan uh, has been a charismatic uh, politician, a smart one. He is a good orator and he knows how to talk and how to manipulate, etc. And and the first one was uh, Demirtas, the head of HDP, and he is in jail. He has been in jail the last two, two and a half years. The other, the other one is Ekrem Imamoğlu, who is the mayor of Istanbul right now. He's about to and, go to jail. Yes, and, and he is banned from politics. He's now, because he was, he was sued, he, wasn't, he was put on a court because of uh, a derogatory, so to speak, uh, or, or um, belittling public officials, like a very made-up charge in a ridiculous way and he was uh, he was uh, tried in in a very quick trial and he got a sentence and he's not going to serve it now but attached to his sentence was that he's banned from politics now he's waiting there's some appealing processes etc for that but what Erdogan did was to block or what Erdogan has been doing is to identify political figures who have the potential to emerge as significant alternatives to him and block them and make sure they cannot run against him. And Demirtas was the first one and, and Imamoğlu is the second one, unfortunately. It sounds very similar to the consolidation of authoritarianism uh, in Russia under Putin. Yes. These similarly exactly. started out exactly, and or the creating a client network with oligarchs who are extremely rich, but their richness is so closely tied to their relationship with the core. These construction companies that that Jane mentioned, uh, they are extremely rich, extremely well uh, well to do, and they are extremely tied to the government, and they are oligarchs. Uh, we don't use it for uh, uh, people who are not in, in the Russian system, but they are technically oligarchs. If you look at the system and how they became who they became and what is keeping them alive, financially relevant, uh, the same system, the same, and, pa same pattern client system. And what I find interesting in the comparison as well, as Jean pointed out, um, is that for a time, Putin, too, was seen as a steady pair of hands after Yeltsin and a potential reformer, liberalizer, popular in the West. And his uh, center of um, support in Russia was uh, included Moscovites and St. Petersburg uh, cosmopolitans. But when political uh, circumstances changed, he very quickly adopted a nationalist tone and program. And that seems to be a kind of default move that is available for aspiring authoritarians. Right? Yeah, it's not like they are inventing the reinventing the wheel. There is like a toolbox 
and they are all going to that box and picking whatever is is going to help them and they are all using the same te techniques and same strategies um and these are the guys who have been successful at applying and implementing those strategies. And maybe and the other reason, to going back to one of the initial questions in terms of like, then why people, these many people are supporting AKP, have been supporting AKP and voting for the party. There's really not just one single block. And, and Jane, you, you were extremely right on that, the heterogeneity of the supporters. It was more heterogeneous at the beginning but still, you really cannot just find one group of people as the major supporter of the AKP government. You have the, the religious conservatives. You, you also have uh, seculars who are very closely tied to government this way or that way because uh, this is their major source of revenue. They are not religious people. They, they, they actually do not practice religion in any major way that you will identify them as devout uh, uh, Muslims or anything like that. But they are tied to the system in other way. Um, and they all have different motivations and different reasons uh, for that to support AKP. And, and, and there I can add five, ten other groups of people into this mix. One, somebody from the chat raised this interesting point. So, you know, obviously, you know, when we think of uh, autocracies, we think it's a one-man show, but, you know, a one-man show is enabled by, uh, by his henchmen who have their own autonomy and power. Um, you know, people have noticed that uh, Suleiman Soylu, the Yerliver Milli Escobar, the uh, interior minister, is completely absent from this uh, state of affairs. Where is he? He's been touted as a potential uh, successor to Erdogan. Erdogan's pretty old. There are rumors about cancer or what have you. You know, Erdogan may die or have to leave office at some point, and there is a question of succession that will come up. And Suleiman Soylu has a very important role as the interior minister, which has vast police powers within the country. And you would think that he, as interior minister, he would be at the forefront of this. This seems like something that is in the remit of a very powerful uh, uh, ministry with a, a ton of different remits. Can you, ha, have you noticed his absence? What's going on with this? I mean, I have my own theory, but I cannot prove that, right? My theory is that, and you are, you are right, he has been touted as the legitimate alternative to Erdogan. Erdogan is going to go sooner or later, and who is going to replace him? And they have been grooming Suleiman Soylu for that position, and he, I think he also has been grooming himself for that position. And my theory is that he knows, he's smart enough to know that if he shows his face, He's going to be attacked. Wherever he goes, he's going to receive more criticism than support. And he's trying to keep his face and his reputation as untarnished as possible behind the scenes so other members of Erdogan's cabinet would receive the blow, would receive the hit. And when they all uh, hate it very openly and criticize very openly because everybody is attacking whomever they see on the ground. And then Suleiman Soylu is going to come and play the role of I am the savior. It's interesting, though, you know, that it does carry the risk for him, of course, though, that he may end up being the fall guy for this. I mean, uh, 
people may not remember this, but there was bombing in Istiklal Jadisi in Istanbul. Uh, it was blamed on the PKK and YPG. It's very, it, although that's very, um, they're shady, yeah, very shady. There's all kinds of discussions, even in you know well-respected Turkish newspapers like Cumhuriyet. I read in Cumhuriyet there's connections to the MHP. You know, in Turkey has a history of false flag operations, as we know, and uh, you know, uh, you know, the term deep state was you know early adopted in Turkey long before it became popular in the United States. Um, but Soylu got into trouble because he came out with some very harsh words about the United States blaming America for this, and he was immediately kind of told, told off by Erdogan, right? People were like, oh my God, Turkey's going full, blaming this on America. And then, you know, he's kind of got above his station. He perhaps was, you know, you know, he was more, more king than the, uh, uh, more royalist than the king, right? He, um, in his uh, vigor, because another important plank of AKP discourse has been a kind of kabuki anti-imperialism where, you know, these guys are completely dependent on foreign capital. They're completely dependent on money pouring in um, from Europe, now from the Gulf, uh, to sustain the uh, unorthodox economic policies. And, um, you know, uh, but, you know, for internal consumption, you know, blaming all problems in the country on America has been a very, you know, you know, a very useful strategy for the occupant, but it's a dangerous one, right? You know, like you, you can push it so far, but you know, at the end of the day, you still want the, you know, you still want the American fighters. Yeah. Yeah. You still, yeah. you still need to have an open trade with Europe. You, you know, you, you have to balance that. And, you know, Suleiman Sodi went a little bit too far in that discourse after the Istiklal bombing. Now, I, I think that's a really interesting theory that he may be trying to keep down low, but you know, if we see in the next couple of weeks the press start beginning to criticize him, we'll see what we'll we'll know what's up, I guess. Yes, 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 yes. Definitely. And he's also there's all this discussion about his connections with drugs, uh, cocaine, like diplomatic diplomatic, uh, um, you know, airplanes being used to bring uh, drugs from Venezuela, and there's this nickname the um, the, I don't know, how would you translate Yerliver Milli, you know, like uh, indigenous, our indigenous Escobar, right? You know, yeah. like <laughs> a locally produced Pablo Escobar. Yes, 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 yes. No, no, that is true. And that, that, there, have, there have been a lot of ex, uh, a lot of discoveries on that front in terms of uh, many members of the inner political circle and their entanglement with international drug uh trade in international drug networks and and one of the most uh, uh, famous and, and the funniest one was the the son of uh, a former prime minister binali uh, binali yildirim his son uh, got caught traveling from venezuela uh, and he said that he was only uh, taking um covid vaccines va vaccinations and tests uh, as a sign of help from Turkey to Venezuela, and there was no other reason for him to go. Be this was before 
uh, <laughs> this was before no serious uh, vaccination efforts or no serious testing efforts was whatsoever there, but they immediately tied it to the Turkish way of helping others and taking care of others and being the international help to wherever there is some some group of people in need and our helping hand is going all the way to Venezuela to take uh, uh, medication and vaccination and tests, COVID tests. Uh, of course, nobody took that seriously. And uh, I have a colleague who is from Venezuela and he was telling me that, like, why does Turkish Airlines have flights from uh, Caracas every day to Istanbul? Like, who is flying every day from Caracas, the huge plane, to Istanbul? Good question. Well, and drugs are like flooding the country, right? And I mean, I, there are all kinds of conspiracy. I mean, when I was in Turkey, drug use was very like didn't exist. Too. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there, there were Bohemians who might smoke some hashish or like, you know, people would drink alcohol or what have you. But, you know, cocaine and, and yeah. things like that. Or this, fentanyl or, and, or yes, yes, yes. And, and, you know, there are all kinds of conspiracies that they're flooding the youth market with this to try and depoliticize them. Now, you know, like I am always wary of these kind of like uh, conspiracies, mm -hmm. but, you know, certainly people are making money. There was a well-known Turkish mafia boss who ran off to the Gulf and was uh, telling all the stories yeah. about everybody. Yeah. Um, what was his name? Peker. Yeah. He said that Peker. It was just, it was just, sitting on was it on youtube or tiktok or something it, yes he he it, he was on youtube and he's quiet he has been quiet he yeah. hasn't been saying much and and a lot of people thought that what he was revealing was going to be the end of it because he revealed so much of corruption so much of of dealings illegal dealings of Suleyman Soylu uh, he really didn't attack Erdogan directly all his enemy was actually Suleyman Soylu but at the end who lost Erdogan's uh, son-in-law mm -hmm. there was a huge competition and huge rivalry between Erdogan's son-in-law and Suleyman Soylu and they both of them were trying to create their own networks to pump them for uh, being the next person and Erdogan got rid of his own son-in-law on behalf of Suleyman Soylu, because my, again, theory is that Suleyman Soylu has much more power within the police, within the army, within the, the people on the ground, and it was too risky to, to eliminate him as opposed to his own son-in-law. And his son-in-law as well was not particularly popular because he was taking the fall for the, uh, I mean, for the economic policies in the country. Because, you know, I think, you know, the background to this, we've talked to kind of about the political dimensions of everything, but, you know, there is a profound economic crisis taking place in Turkey. And Turkey is really between a rock and a hard place because uh, Erdogan is keeping the interest rates low. He's pumping money into the economy to try and keep, uh, you know, try and he has been pumping money into the economy to try and uh, uh, juice things before the election. He's been getting money from the Gulf to assist with this. He's taken all kinds of money uh, from the Gulf. And, um, but that's not a sustainable policy, right? The flip side is that they capitulate to international capital, and that means they're going to have to raise interest rates and throw millions of people out of work. So they're in this kind of perpetual crisis, either mass unemployment or mass inflation. And 
like there isn't an out for them, right? There's no out for them. They they just have to constantly, and and I think Erdogan is probably it ideologically committed to the interest rates thing. I think you know he's got this whole thing about the 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 uh, the Feist lobbyists, the um, the fucking the usurers, right? The, he's like very much against like usury and things like that. And it's always we all know he's talking about Jews, right? Even as he uh, you know. So even as he allows Turkey to serve as a major hub for the transfer of uh, goods and military technology to Israel, you know, it's never a bad thing to blame Jews in uh, for everything. And uh, yeah, we just, you know, we see this perpetual economic crisis where Turkey doesn't really have a way out that is not painful, right? Because, you know, people talk about, well, Turkey needs to be follow, you know, e economic orthodoxy, but that has a very painful cost for people in Turkey, uh, which will be like huge unemployment in the yeah. country. Yes. And that will be, that is probably less palatable to Erdogan to have millions of unemployed people who have time on their hands to protest on the streets. That is, that is the big, the big elephant in the room. Even if actually something happens and Erdogan uh, leaves the, the, being the president, whomever is going to replace him, they are going to be in big trouble and they are going to be blamed for a, a crash in economy uh, and even higher inflation, much higher, uh, whatever, whatever recipe that they are going to implement, it is going to have short term disastrous effect and they are going to suffer. Well, we have been going for over an hour. Uh, 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 today, and I want to thank you, Aisha, for joining us today to talk about this really important uh, topic. Now, you're doing some fundraising yourself. Would you be able to talk a little bit about that? I put the link in the uh, in in our description so that thank people you. can see the Vimeo that you have. Thank you. So, just thank you. can you talk a, a little yes, bit about yes. what you're doing? Yes, thank you. So, as uh, many of us in the United States and in Europe, they have we have been trying to find a way to reach out to people who are directly affected by the earthquakes in Turkey, and uh, with very little trust to the government and government-related agencies. There is only one right now initiative, the Ahbab. And a lot of people are sending their money through Ahbab. And I don't think they have the necessary infrastructure and power to handle millions and millions of liras and dollars that they are receiving. And in that case, I thought maybe I can uh, start my own very humble initiative to, co to collect some donations and reach out to people on the ground that I know through family and friends and give the money directly to the people, to the families who are either lost their houses or businesses or family members and in that i just started this on twitter and it picked up got picked up and people have been extremely generous and if you have any uh, spare dollars around i would love to um i would love you to donate as well uh, we have identified over 50 families right now in uh earthquake hit uh places like marash and adiaman malatya antakya and Gaziantep, and we are going to uh, uh, give them the money that just to be a small help because actually um, the, the future is not bright because um, even those who survived, they will have to rebuild everything from, from zero, literally. And we are just trying to be a small band-aid in a huge, huge injury that they are suffering. 
Yeah, and I think that's important to know. A lot of the aid that's taking place in the absence of, you know, an adequate state support uh, response is, you know, peer-to-peer, -peer, people literally helping their families. Many people in Europe uh, especially come from this, this region. You know, it was a prime area. I mean, I think of half of the community I know from London are from either from Adyaman or from Malatya. Yes. You know, like... Uh, or, so, you know, people are helping any way they can, not just through charities, but through peer-to-peer. -peer. Yes. So I would, you know, ask people to take a look at the, some of the places that we've put in our description, including Aisha's uh, fundraising as well. You know, I don't want to tell people to give to anything specifically uh, on there, but, you know, take a look at them and see what you feel comfortable uh, giving to. There is, you know... There's the Kurdish Red Crescent, which is working with people in Syria. Uh, there is um, there is uh, the Ahbab I put on there. There's uh, Hassan Abi, uh, the the streamer. He had a fundraiser that was very successful. There's Aisha's on there, and I think the Research Institute from Turkey. I've been given names by various people who. Uh, I think are responsible. So, you know, like people can look into things themselves, but I put some various uh, things on there. There's also a link to an article in the uh, USA Today, which has some places for, um, give, you know, for giving. Um, you know, my personal opinion is like, I don't trust Western aid organizations over local aid organizations. All aid organizations end up being corrupt. Just Google the Clinton Foundation, right? So, um, you know, like, I'm perfectly comfortable myself personally giving to things like Ahbab and the uh, Kurdish Red Crescent. But, you know, again, people should look into it. And if they just have a few spare dollars, consider giving it. Um, I've tweeted out a list of things on, on Twitter with the, the TIR account. Uh, so people can just, you know, like share that list that I put up there, add anything that you think is appropriate on there. And, you know, just basically get the, get the word out because, you know, really, if when we're talking about the scale of a disaster, it's not a few thousand. It's not even tens of thousands. It could be as many as 100,000 people who could be dead and many more who have lost everything, uh, you know. And, you know, it's not, you know, it's not just affecting what it's not just Turks. It's 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 Turks, Kurds, Arabs. All these communities have a shared tragedy which, you know, if there is any silver lining, perhaps, you know, people will show some solidarity and some of the hatred and the, you know, uh, conflict that's in the region, you know, maybe this might serve uh, as a kind of lesson about people's common humanities. You know, uh, hopefully all talk of escalating conflicts in Syria will end as people focus on reconstruction and, you know, and people, and I would add, people should not forget about Syria. You know, I've seen a lot of people tweeting saying, oh, the Assad will steal all the aid money. And it's like, well, you know, lots of aid organizations uh, have shady practices. And also, you know, the crisis in Syria is exacerbated by the sanctions that are in this co that country, which doesn't allow reconstruction. As people know, I'm not a huge fan of the Assad regime or the, or, or the kind of apologia that certain people on the left do for the Assad regime. But there is no doubt that the international sanctions on uh, on Syria have greatly enhanced the human tragedy that's taking place in that country uh, a, a, as well. You know, it's not just 
it can't just be led squarely at the feet of the Assad government as well. So that would be just something else I would uh, add as well. So, you know, p please consider helping in any way you can. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully be able to follow up on this. Any last words, Derek and Kuba? No. Well, Kuba? Just thank you for joining us. And um, I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation, especially since in a lot of mainstream media, uh, it's been sadly overlooked. And with that, as we say on This Is Revolution, we are out. <laughs>